Now, I mentioned uh, this morning that it would be a good idea to take a look at what St. Augustine tells us. Because in the City of God, Book 13, he deals with the question of death. <clears throat> and he talks about the nature of death <clears throat> and dying, and he distinguishes between the two in relation to the particular judgment. And uh, in chapter 2 of that Book 13, <clears throat> He says, the death then of the soul takes place when God forsakes it as the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. Therefore, the death of both, that is, of the whole man, occurs when the soul forsaken by God forsakes the body. For in this case, neither is God the life of the soul, nor is the soul the life of the body. And this death of the whole man is followed by that which on the authority of the divine oracles, we call the second death. <clears throat> this the Savior referred to when he said, Fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. St. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. So St. Augustine talks about the nature of death, the death of the body and the death of the soul. He says, just as the soul is the life of the body, God's grace is the life of the soul. You take the soul away from the body, the body is dead. You take God's grace away from the soul, it has no divine life. It has only the life of a sinner, it is dead. It is dead in its sin. Now the soul doesn't corrupt like the body, the soul doesn't just disintegrate like the body does. It's immortal because it's spiritual and it doesn't have parts. It can't disintegrate, it can't decompose. The soul is incapable of doing that. The only way the soul could stop being is if God stopped willing it to be existent. <clears throat> and once God has willed the human soul into existence, he never, he never annihilates it. He only sustains it immortally. So the question is then of the soul, when the soul, when the body dies, the body is dead. Of course, that death is reparable, that death is reversible. Why? Because the soul can return to the body. The body can be refashioned, as it were. And the soul can return <clears throat> and revivify the body. But when the soul loses the life of grace, only in this life is that reversible, that the life of grace can be brought back and rekindled into the soul by an act of the human will to repent and to beseech God's mercy. But after death of the, of the body and the soul, there is, no, there is no reversal then that is permanent. St. Augustine says, of the first and bodily death then, we may say that to the good, it is good. Bodily death to the good is good, is a good. It is an evil to the evil. But doubtless the second, as it happens to none of the good, when he says the second, he means the second death, the loss of grace in the soul. So it can be good for none. And so he says the, the separation of the body from the soul, the first death, is actually for the benefit of those who are good. It is to their good. 
The separation of the body from the soul of a very wicked person is to his evil. But the separation of the grace of God from the soul can under no circumstances be good. It is simply evil. <clears throat> so he was raising the question of whether death, which was inflicted as a punishment, can actually be under any circumstances considered a good. And he goes on to that a little bit more in chapter 3. He asks, whether death, which by the sin of our first parents has passed upon all men, is the punishment of sin even to the good. And he answers that, yes, it was a punishment for sin, of course. He says, um, their nature was deteriorated in proportion to the greatness of the condemnation of their sin. So that what existed as punishment in those who first sinned became a natural consequence in their children. And so he, he talks about sin coming upon Adam and Eve, and therefore death. And he talks about the fact that sin and death became a natural consequence in us from them. That is why we as Catholics know original sin is a sin of nature that it is passed down to us by our first parents and down through the generations in the very fact that we are generated by mortals who have been conceived themselves in the state of original sin from our first parents. Now, you know, in, in the former times, they might have considered this to be something purely spiritual, and it is. It is something rooted in the soul. That's true. But in our own time, we know that there are genetic diseases that come down through generations and generations, and they, they actually uh, are caused by problems in the very genetic makeup of an individual, and something that does uh, get inherited from one generation to another. So the idea of inheriting, inheriting an evil like that <clears throat> to us should be even more comprehensible than it was to those in the past <clears throat> when we see the consequences of genetic uh, illnesses and diseases and so on. We see that, yes, in the human race, there is this continuation from generation to generation of this defect, not only in our, in our, in our human genome, but actually in our very souls. Um, so St. Augustine says in this regard that this applies to man uh, insofar as his parentage. He says, but as man the parent is, such is man the offspring. And that applies to body and soul. He says human nature was in the person of Adam vitiated and altered to such an extent that he suffered in his members the warring of disobedient lust and became subject to the necessity of dying. And what he himself had become by sin and punishment, such he generated those whom he begot, that is to say, subject to sin and death. <clears throat> in chapter 5, St. Augustine raises the question, as the wicked make an ill use of the law, which is good, so the good make a good use of death, which is an ill or an evil. 
And he explains it this way. Uh, of course, he gives you much more of an uh, elaborate explanation. I'm just highlighting certain conclusions that he draws. He says, thus, the law is indeed good because it is prohibition from sin. And death is evil because it is the wages of sin. But as wicked men make an evil use, not only of evil, but also of good things, so the righteous make a good use, not only of good things, but also even of evil things. Whence it comes to pass <clears throat> that the wicked make an ill use of the law, though the law is good, and that the good die well, even though death is an evil. And you see, now we're taking steps toward the true Christian, the Catholic concept of a good death here. Because he's letting us know that uh, even though death is an evil, it is something that we can use well and to our advantage. In the next chapter, this is all in book 13 of the City of God. St. Augustine says in chapter 6, of the evil of death in general, considered as the separation of soul and body. He says, but whatever that may be in the dying, which, which with violently painful sensation robs all sensation, yet when it is piously and faithfully borne, it increases the merit of patience, but does not make the name of punishment inapplicable. He says it's still considered to be Punishment, but it's, it's accepted in humility and obedience. That's the thing, isn't it? So he says it's not the death itself which becomes something good. It's just that we make good use of it by the way we accept it. And then he goes on to chapter 7. And I found this to be very interesting myself because I'd never actually seen this before, at least not that I, it's, I certainly didn't see it in the same way I saw it uh, recently. Because he asked the question in chapter 7 of the death which the unbaptized suffer for the confession of Christ. Now you think about that, you realize the death which the unbaptized suffer for the confession of Christ, well, you realize right now he's talking about the baptism of blood. The death of the unbaptized suffered to confess faith in Christ. Interesting because there's been a great deal of controversy raised, because the, the modernists have taken the concepts of baptism of desire and baptism of blood and made them practically, practically meaningless, especially the baptism of desire, because they make it apply to virtually anybody who ever had a good thought. <clears throat> and then the Phineites and that group <clears throat> take the idea of baptism of desire in particular, and baptism of blood, and they go to the other extreme, which is equally un-Catholic, and they just deny them altogether. What does St. Augustine say? It's very interesting. About the year 400 AD, he wrote these words. He said, For whatever unbaptized persons die confessing Christ, this confession is of the same efficacy for the remission of sins as if they were washed in the sacred font of baptism. 
For he who said, quote, unless a man be born of water and of the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's St. John chapter 3, verse 5, as you know. He made also an exception in their favor. In that other sentence where he no less absolutely said, quote, whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. And that's from St. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. And in another place, quote, whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. And this explains the verse, quote, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For what is more precious than a death by which a man's sins are all forgiven? And his merits increased a hundredfold. For those who have been baptized when they could no longer escape death and have departed this life with all their sins blotted out have not equal merit with those who did not defer death, though it was in their power to do so, but preferred to end their life by confessing Christ rather than by denying him to secure an opportunity of baptism. And even had they denied him under pressure of the fear of death, this too would have been forgiven them in that baptism, in which was remitted even the enormous wickedness of those who had slain Christ. But how abundant in these men must have been the grace of the Holy Ghost, who breathes where he will, lists, seeing that they so dearly loved Christ as to be unable to deny him, even in so sore an emergency, and with so sure a hope of pardon. Precious, therefore, is the death of the saints, to whom the grace of Christ has been applied with such gracious effects, that they do not hesitate to meet death themselves, if so be they might meet him. Now, I don't know if you're able to follow that very, very easily. St. Augustine can be very beautiful and stunning in his simplicity, but he can also be very, very complex in expressing some uh, important thoughts. And what he just said here, uh, in case there was any confusion about that, about those who chose death uh, in order to confess our Lord and not to deny him, even though they weren't baptized. He was saying, look, <clears throat> by being baptized, receiving this actual sacrament of baptism, that's the pouring of the water and the pronunciation of the words of baptism, all sin is removed. That's a fact. And now there are those who, being yet unbaptized, confess Christ. Now you get the idea that they know Christ, that they love Christ, our Lord, but they've not been baptized. Are they catechumens? Are they studying the faith? Have they been learning the faith? Are they preparing for baptism? The implication is, the implication is that they know enough of our Lord and they love him enough to die for him so that they are on their way to the sacrament of baptism. That's what he's implying here. 
But he said, <coughs> rather than deny our Lord for the sake of prolonging their life, for the sake of getting baptized, they hold steadfast in their faith, profess their belief in our Lord, and they suffer death, even though that death prevents them from being baptized. Because they know that Christ, in, in uh, answering their faith, will account that as justification and grace to them. And they will be saved because of their fidelity to our Lord, even though they were not baptized. That's what St. Augustine says. He says, if they had been willing to just deny our Lord temporarily to get out of danger with the expectation they would be baptized as soon as the opportunity afforded itself, as soon as they were eligible, whatever, um, they, they would have known that by virtue of the baptism, they would have had the sin of denying Christ forgiven them. So they could have said, well, here I am in danger of death. <coughs> I'm being threatened because of my belief in Jesus Christ. I'm not baptized. I'll just deny him now with the confidence that surviving this moment, I'll go on and get baptized, and then my denial of him will be forgiven. And so I'll have all my sins forgiven when I'm baptized. He said, they wouldn't even do that. They wouldn't even deny him for that. And that's how much they loved him. That's how faithful they were. And our Lord says that these people who die this actually have more merit than those who survived to be baptized. Um... I don't know if you caught that or not. But uh, for those who have been baptized when they could no longer escape death and have departed this life with all their sins blotted out, have not, not equal merit, he says, with those who did not defer death, accepted death, although they could have, it was in their power to do so, but they preferred to offer their life and end it by confessing Christ rather than denying him then for the sake of going on and getting baptized and having all those sins forgiven that way. So it's very clear what St. Augustine is saying here. So if anybody challenges the idea of baptism of blood, refer them to St. Augustine. If they have a problem with that, let them take it up with St. Augustine. He's very emphatic in this. I thought it was a beautiful explanation, a very powerful explanation of St. Augustine. Way back at the end of the 4th century, the beginning of the 5th century, he bears testimony to the church's faith in baptism of blood. And he goes on in chapter 8 to say that the saints, by suffering the first death for the truth's sake, are freed from the second death. For... A man submits to some part of death for the very purpose of avoiding the entire death, the body and the soul. And the second and eternal death over and above. He submits to the separation of soul and body lest the soul be separated from both God and from the body. And so again, he's developing the theme here in this book 13 of the, of the City of God about the nature that we have inherited from Adam and how it is subject to sin and death. 
But he's talking here about the actual benefit of death for those who are good, for those who are moral, for those who love God. And so I think it's very important that we hear the voice of saints about this question of death. After all, we were told that uh, death, judgment, is a terrible thing, and it is a punishment, and that it is. But when you read what the saints have to say about death, you realize they have a very, very different perspective on that. Something in them has enabled them to look at death in a very different way. And would that we could only see it the way they do. Would that we could. And understand why they saw it the way they did. And what it meant to them. And join them in their way of thinking. St. Gregory of Nyssa, the great bishop of the 300s, Quote, and so man separated himself from the fruit of all good things, and by his disobedience he was filled with the fruit that brings destruction. And the name of that fruit was mortal sin. <clears throat> Straight away he died to the more perfect life. He passed from a divine life to one on the level with irrational beasts. Once death was mingled with his nature, mortality was passed on to all generations of his children. Hence, we are born into a life of death. For in a certain sense, our very life has died. Our life is indeed dead because we have been deprived of immortality. But the man who is aware that he lives in the midst of two lives can cross the barrier between them, such that by destroying the one, he can give victory to the other. Man, by his death to the true life, entered into this life of death. So too, when he dies to this irrational life of death, he is restored to life eternal. And so there is no doubt but that we cannot enter into this life of blessedness unless we die to sin. And so it is that uh, he expresses our Lord's words that he who loses his life in this world for my sake will find his life. And... Uh, so we find St. Basil the Great also, a contemporary of St. Gregory of Nyssa. As the Lord thought good, so it came to pass. Let us adopt those marvelous words at the hands of the righteous judge. They who show like good deeds shall, re like good deeds shall receive a like reward. He whom we love is not hidden in the ground. He is received into heaven. Let us wait a little while and we shall be once more with him. The time of our separation is not long, for in this life we are all like travelers on a journey, hastening on to the same shelter. While one has reached his rest, another arrives, another hurries on, but one and the same end awaits them all. And he's talking about, he's talking about the blessed in heaven. St. John the Wonder Worker says, Limitless and without cancellation, what had been our sorrow for close ones who are dying, if the Lord had not given us eternal life. Our life would be pointless if it ended with death. What benefit would there then be from virtue and good deed? Then they would be correct to say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But man was created for immortality, and by his resurrection Christ opened the gates of the heavenly kingdom, of eternal blessedness for those who have believed in him and have lived righteously. Our earthly life is a preparation for the future life, and this preparation ends with our death. Quote, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. This is from the epistle of St. Paul to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, a very, very famous and justly 
justly notable statement here. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And St. John the Wonderworker continues, Then a man leaves all his earthly cares. The body disintegrates in order to arise anew at the general resurrection. Often this spiritual vision begins in the dying even before death. And while still seeing those around them, and even speaking with them, they see what others do not see. They begin to see, as it were, the outskirts of heaven, it seems, and the blessed who are there. St. Cyprian of Carthage, when once you have departed this life, there is no longer any place for repentance, no way of making satisfaction. Here life is either lost or kept. Here, by the worship of God and by the fruit of faith, provision is made for eternal salvation. Let no one be kept back either by his sins or by his years from coming to obtain salvation. To him who still re remains in this world, there is no repentance that is too late. To him who still remains in this world, there is no repentance that is too late. Again, always, always hope, always hope. Right? And St. John Vianney, if we were required to die twice, we could jettison one death, but man dies once only, and upon his death depends his eternity. Where the tree falls, there it shall lie. If at the hour of death someone is living in bad habit, the poor soul will fall on the side of hell. If, on the other hand, he is in the state of grace, it will take the road for heaven. O oh, blessed road, he says. And St. Teresa of Lisieux. It is not death that will come to fetch me. It is the good God. Death is no phantom, no horrible specter, as presented in pictures. In the Catechism it is stated that death is a separation of soul and body. That is all. Well, I'm not afraid of a separation which will unite me to the good God forever. Le bon Dieu, the good God. That's how the French referred to him. And so you see the hopefulness in the, in the minds of the saints. The saints see death in a very different way. <clears throat> it all depends on the good or the just on the one side and the evil and the unjust on the other. How death should be regarded. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. How consoling it is to see a just man die. How consoling it is to see a just man die, he says. His death is good. Because it ends his miseries, it is better still because he begins a new life. It is excellent because it places him in sweet security. From this bed of mourning whereon he leaves a precious load of virtues, he goes on to take possession of the true land of the living. Jesus acknowledges him as his brother and as his friend, for he has died to the world before closing his eyes from its dazzling light. Such is the death of the saints, a death very precious in the sight of God. See, this is how the saints see death, so very differently. Nothing to be dreaded, nothing to be hated, nothing to be avoided at all possible costs. They see it as something very promising for them, a kind of a fulfillment of their lives here on earth and what they live for. St. Alphonsus Liguori, again, he is a man who spoke very clearly about the judgment and the dread judgment. But he says, is, is not he a fool who seeks after happiness in this world? 
where he will remain only a few days and exposes himself to the risk of being unhappy in the next, where we must live for eternity, we do not fix our affections on borrowed goods because we know that they must soon be returned to the owner. All the goods of this earth are only lent to us. Everything we have is borrowed. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, The more one longs for a thing, the more painful does deprivation of it become. And because after this life the desire for God, the supreme good, is intense in the souls of the just, because this impetus toward him is not hampered by the weight of the body, and that time of enjoyment of the perfect good would have come had there been no obstacle, the soul suffers enormously from the delay. The soul suffers from the delay in getting to heaven. The soul suffers enormously from the delay of purgatory. But even the saints here, and St. Thomas knew it very well, suffered even from the delay of death. Died at the age of 49. He died of a desire, a desire to see God, to see God face to face. I have a sermon from St. John Vianney, which I'll pass over for the time being, but I think you get the point. St. Augustine again, going back to St. Augustine. Christ's martyrs feared neither death nor pain. He triumphed in them who lived in them. And they who lived not for themselves but for him found in death itself the way to life. St. Augustine. And St. Thomas More. A man may very well lose his head and yet come to no harm. Yea, I say, to unspeakable good and everlasting happiness. This is the man who gave the headsman the payment to do his job well, telling him not to be afraid, not to hesitate. He said, because you send me to my God. So you see, the saints have a very different perspective on things than worldlings. And by worldlings, I mean people who live for this world. <clears throat> who think that this world is their heaven and think that by death they're going to be plunged from their heaven into hell. Well, unfortunately, they're probably right. Probably right. If they consider this their heaven, well, they probably will, and losing this, leaving this, be plunged into hell. But in any case, I ask the question, how is it possible for us here today to have that perspective of the saints. How can we understand them? How can we think like they do when it comes to matters of life and death? In particular, matters of death itself, so that it's not something fearful for us, not at all. But rather, we see it as something that is potentially the greatest good that could become of us, so that we're not terrified by the things of the world. You know, we're facing real real serious challenges out there right now, you might have noticed. And uh, there's a lot of fear out there right now, a lot of control in using fear to manipulate us. How do we, like the saints, escape that control? How do we escape that fear? How do we live so as not to be afraid as the pagans fear? 
Well, that's a question we need to understand by understanding our Lord. And so it comes down to the fact that the saints understood our Lord. They understood our Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And because they understood him, they were relieved of all the fears and cares of the world around them. They, they knew him. They not only knew of him and they not only knew about him, but they actually knew him. And the question is, how does one get to know Christ? How does one get from the asking through the seeking to the actually knocking on the door to be admitted into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the saints knew the way. They knew how to do this. And uh, they want us to learn the way. They learned the way from God. And they want to tell us the way themselves. And uh, so that's actually where the conferences are going here. But in order to know the way, we have to know him who is the way. We have to know Jesus. We have to know our Lord Jesus Christ personally. You know, Protestants talk about having a personal relationship with God. They talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. But you know, they don't even know the beginning of it. They don't even know the half of it. You know, they look upon Catholics as being very kind of distant from Christ. But how can we have a religion that is distant from Christ when the very core of our religion and all of our worship is the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present in the Blessed Sacrament? and coming to us in Holy Communion. Talk about a personal relationship. That is about as personal as one can get, really. For those who appreciate it, for those who appreciate the significance of what it is, the Mass, especially the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, that is about as personal and close a relationship as one can have, possibly have, with God. That's the relationship that God wants us to have with him. He wants us to think of him as Father. We see united in this world the lives of our Lord, St. Joseph, St. John the Baptist. None of the three of them, none of the three of them were fathers. They were all devoted to celibacy because they all were there for the service of the fatherhood of God, especially our Lord himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ came in the service of the fatherhood of God, his own divine father. He was here to represent him, to speak for him as a true son. St. John the Baptist and St. Joseph were here to serve him in that mission. But notice that it was the divine fatherhood that our Lord continually spoke of. And this is how God wants to be known. This is the relationship he wants us to have with him. He wants us to see that divine fatherhood reflected in the sacred heart of Jesus. And so we need to know the sacred heart. To know Jesus is to know the sacred heart. And to know the sacred heart is to know Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. So that he's not a strange God to you. But you know him. Personally, you know him. Is it possible? It is. The saints did, and they'll show you how. Now, maybe it's not a bad idea for us to think about our Lord and his sufferings for us because they show the way into his sacred heart. In fact, what we want to do 
in a sense, is follow the tip of that spear into the heart of our Lord. We want to follow the tip of the spear that entered into and opened the heart of our Lord. So when we look at that, uh, that moment of the piercing, piercing of the heart of our Lord, we're actually entering into our Lord's own mind, his intellect, his will, his uh, cognitive faculties, as they call them in philosophy, his affective powers, and his ap the appetites of the soul. Because our Lord Jesus Christ actually became man. Son of God actually became man. And he took to himself a human nature in its fullness, in its perfection. So he had all the powers of a human soul. And the powers of the human soul that he had also involved the very powers that you and I have in common, even with the animals of the earth. Because by bodily existence, we need sustenance. We need security. We need safety. There are things we need to be able to know and things we need to be able to act upon. In this world, in this material world, we have to know. And yes, our Lord had those powers too, the powers of his soul. And you might even say that here is the key to understanding not just the passion of Jesus Christ, but the passions of Jesus Christ. You see, when we talk about the passion of our Lord, we tend to think about our Lord being beaten, spat upon, scourged, crowned with thorns, carrying the cross, nailed to the cross, hanging on the cross, dying on the cross. We think of all those things. But that is only the part of the passion of our Lord that is visible, that is audible, that is tangible. The real passion of our Lord, we might talk about, requires us to understand the passions of our Lord. What was going on in his heart? What was going on in his soul? There you find the real sufferings that go far beyond any of the physical sufferings we inflicted on our Lord. Our sins inflicted much greater sufferings than we can see. And that's why we have to actually enter into the Sacred Heart as it were, to enter into the soul of our Lord, to understand what he endured for us and how he thinks, and, for that matter, how he feels, because he does feel. He's got a man's heart. And we'll see how significant that is when we, when we look at the, the role of the heart in sacred scripture and how sacred scripture refers to the heart of man, even the heart of God. So we get into a little bit of a philosophical treatment here, just very little bit. It's not going to be much. But you see, we know we have intelligence and will. And the intelligence is given to us by God as the highest faculty, enabling us to know what is true. It even enables us to know what truth is. And will is the faculty which is the appetite of the intellect. It is the effective part of the intelligence. The intelligence enables us to know, what, to know what good is. And by the power of the will, we want it. By the power of the will, we seek it. By the power of the will, we love what is good. And the union of the intellect and will 
the truth and goodness. We have, thirdly, the, what is beautiful. And if there's anything really characteristic of human nature, it is the ability to appreciate what is beautiful. Because ultimately, that is the realization of the purpose of our existence, to appreciate what is beautiful, to rejoice in what is beautiful. And that is going to be in God in heaven. That's where we find the wellspring of all beauty in him. So God gave us these higher faculties that enable us to actually be like him, to perform like him, these, these powers of knowing what is true and good and beautiful. And finally, of him who is, the tr is truth and goodness and beauty. But we also have our animal nature here. Um, we say that man is a creature composed of body and soul. And we talk about man as being a rational animal. These things basically are equivalent because they involve soul and body. And so our soul attached to the body, united substantially to the body. In fact, without the body, when the body dies and our souls are separated, they are considered incomplete substances. Yeah, even the saints in heaven, even the souls of saints in heaven are considered philosophically incomplete substances until the resurrection and the soul is reunited with the body. So you see, there are things in our souls, there are powers that are needed for us to be in union with a body and to live in the body in this world. We have to have a kind of cognitive abilities to know the things of this world. We have the power to see, power to hear, power to smell, taste and touch, we do. Those are called the five external senses. Those are the things that bring us into contact with the things around us, outside of us. But there are also what are called the internal senses, the internal senses. And when you think about it, they make perfect sense. You don't hear much about the internal senses, but you know they're really there. <clears throat> and the first of the, of the internal senses they talk about Senses that have to do with what goes on in your own mind about what you sense from the outside world. What does your mind do with these impressions? But one of the things your mind has to do is tie them together. I mean, after all, when I have a piece of chocolate cake in front of me, I see it, it enters into my sight, I register that as vision. I can smell it, and I smell, let's say, the chocolate, and I think, oh, that's very pleasing. I may even poke it and feel it and say, oh, it's nice and warm. <laughs> and it's done. It's, it's finished. That's the sense of touch. Then I take a forkful and put it in my mouth. See, So now I taste it. And I also can get a sense of the texture of it by, by touch. All of my senses are involved. But here's the question. What is it that ties my, my sense of vision, what I see, to what I'm tasting, what I smelled, what I feel? Why aren't these just separate things? Why aren't I registering as five separate things and distinct things, the vision, the taste, the smell, the touch? What is it that brings them all together and relates it to this one and the same thing, a piece of chocolate cake in front of me? There has to be something that ties them all together 
and refers them all to this one thing. And that is what the philosophers call the common sense. Very different from what we refer to common sense in our common language. But the common sense is what ties together these sense impressions and makes us realize all of these different sense impressions refer to this one object. They're all true of this one and the same object. They're not just five separate things that are just unrelated in my mind. So that's the first of the cognitive abilities according to my sensation, really. But then there's also a sense imagination. And that's the imaginative sense is actually a is actually a sensitive, a sensual, you might say, uh, a matter of uh, not spiritual but material thing, imagination. So I can take the material impressions I get from what I see and what I hear and so on, and I can imagine these things. I can recombine them. I can I can apply them in different ways. Um, and uh, I have the ability to actually be rather inventive this way. And so it is with artistry. I can represent things in different ways that are not that way really in nature. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that art is the realization of the ideal and the idealization of the real, which means that we actually change the real in our minds and we can make it ideal. But then we can also imagine something that doesn't exist, and we can also come up with an ideal for it, and we can actually pursue and try to make it real. So we have this imaginative sense in us as well. We also have the estimative sense, and the estimative sense, as an internal sense, enables us to recognize when something is good or bad for us physically. Uh, how does the, even the lamb know that the wolf is a danger? In, until the wolf attacks the lamb and eats the lamb, how does the lamb know? The lamb knows. We have that estimative sense too, that we can almost sense danger. And we can sense what is good for us. So there is the estimative sense, which is part of our internal makeup. And we finally have the memorative sense, the memorative sense. And the memorative sense is the power within our souls to retain the sense impressions we've received to retain them, to recall, yes, I've had this experience. I know what happened. I recall that I had this before. I've sensed this thing before. I retain that in me. And I can even, apart from the presence of the thing that I saw or the thing that I heard, I can see it again and I can hear it again in my mind just by calling up the memorative sense. So all of these things are senses in that they involve sense impressions that I'm working with in my mind. Without these things, we would not be able to survive or even function in this world. So this is necessary in us. It was part of our Lord's mind too. Yes, our Lord had these things, these cognitive senses in his, in his soul. The common sense, the imaginative sense, the estimative sense, the memorative sense, and, you know, all of these things played a part even in his passion, even in his suffering. But as I mentioned, you know, when you have uh, a cognitive sense, you also have an appetite. As I mentioned, we have the intellect to know what is true and to tell us what is good. But we also have the will, which is the appetite of the intellect, to want what is good 
and to avoid what is damaging or harmful. And so with these cognitive senses, these internal senses of the soul regarding sensible things, yes, we also have we also have the effective or uh, we also have the appetites. And these are the effective things that enable us to take the sense things we know and to desire them or to shun them. And this also has a lot to do with the passion of our Lord because our Lord's passions were certainly affected by these appetites. Now the appetites, the sense appetites we have, actually come down to two. There is what are called the irascible appetite and the concupiscible appetite. And the irascible appetite, the concupiscible appetite, kind of summarize our um, effective response to the things we know by sensation. So these often we call our passions, okay? And uh, when we talk about passion, the passion of our Lord, we're talking about the sufferings. When we talk about the passions that come from our concupiscible and our irascible appetites, I wish I had a board, I'd write them down for you. Irascible, I-R-A, and concupiscible, you recognize the word concupiscence. Ira, Ira, has to do with anger. I-R-A, Ira, Ire, in Latin means anger. Concupiscence comes from the word for desire. So we have a, an appetite, a sense appetite in our being, which when our cognitive powers tell us that something is good and desirable, we want it. We want it. And when something is presented to us as being harmful, dangerous, painful, we want to escape it. And that's what these two appetites are for. And again, they're meant to keep us alive in this world. Now, flowing from these two appetites, we have these passions. And the passions are what is going through our desires that actually has a physical effect on our bodies. You can actually see a physical effect from the passions that we experience. The concupiscible appetite has six passions associated with it. And you have the one and the opposite, okay? You have, for example, joy, or sometimes it's called delight. Joy, where you rejoice at the idea of something, something good. But the opposite is sadness. So joy or sadness, these are two these are two passions of the concupiscible appetite. You can have desire or aversion. Sometimes aversion is called abhorrence. Desire and aversion. You can have love or hatred. Now we're not talking about spiritual love 
or spiritual hatred here. We're talking about sense love or sense hatred. Something that you crave to have, something that you crave to escape. Okay? So these are the these are the six passions that flow from the concupiscible appetite. Our Lord himself had these, and they're very op- obvious in his passion and sufferings. Joy or sadness, desire or aversion, love or hatred. And of the irascible appetite, there are five passions. And they are two in pairs, except for anger. Hope is one, and despair. These are two opposite each other, either hope or despair. Courage, fear are opposed to each other. Courage and fear. Anger stands alone. And somebody asked a week ago among the ladies, why does anger have no opposite? And the answer is because anger has to do with a present evil, a present great evil that is afflicting us and a present great joy, a present great good that has come to us, well, that is not, that is not actually a passion, the actual present great good. That we might refer to the concupiscible appetite of joy or enjoying something that is present. So anger itself does not have a, a real counterpart among the passions, curiously enough. But these are the six concupiscible appetites, and these, uh, or I should say passions, and these are the five irascible passions. And uh, they all play a different role in us, depending on the closeness of the evil or the remoteness of the evil. The closeness of the good or the remoteness of the good, whether there is any hope of having the good or despair of having the good, whether there's any hope of avoiding the evil or whether there is despair of avoiding the evil. All of these things have to do with what we perceive in our cognitive sense as being good or evil, good or bad for us physically, and how we react to these things. And we react so forcibly to them by our joy, or delight, our sadness, our desire, our aversion, our love, our hatred, hope or despair, courage, fear, and anger, that they actually induce a physical change in us. Again, you see in our Lord all of these passions, these human passions at work. In his suffering and death on the cross, we see in all that he did, we see these things at work. Are these things good or bad? Well, in themselves, they're good, they're right. God instilled them in us for our life in this world. They be only become moral in terms of morally good or morally bad, depending on how we respond to them by our will. Do we will something right or do we will something wrong? So they only become morally good or bad in terms of the will being engaged. But as far as the passions themselves, 
They're rather indifferent, as long as they function the way God designed them to, to keep us alive in this world. That's fine. They're fine. It's a, they become sinful only when they become disordered in the will, and we consent to things that are wrong. Now, it's very important for us to realize that our Lord Jesus Christ had all of these passions, and therefore, he was capable of suffering in all of these ways. And we see this in him. And that's what leads us into his sacred heart. We begin to realize the feelings of our Lord Jesus Christ, the passions of our Lord, what he endured, and what that should mean for you and me, and what it tells us about praying with him. That's where I want to go with this, really. How this helps us to enter into a prayerful relationship with the sacred heart of Jesus, and even into mental prayer itself. Um, so that's what I intend to address uh, in the next conference this year. But let me, let me just uh, close by giving you a little bit of a taste of sacred scripture and what it says about the heart and related to what I just said about the passions and how we see throughout the sacred scriptures this, these references to the heart being so, so characteristic in scripture of referring to the man himself, who he really is. Now, um, there are Almost, almost 800 references to the heart in sacred scripture. 800 references. That's a lot of references. If you have a Bible that's 3,000 pages or close to it, you might say, well, that would mean that virtually every third page of my Bible refers to the heart. That's a lot of references. So if we just take of the last hundred of those references uh, were in the New Testament. I mean, the vast majority of those references in the, are in the Old Testament already, 700 something of them. But well over 100, maybe 120 of those references are in the New Testament, the Gospels and Epistles themselves. And um, here we have our Lord talking about, talking about the heart of man and what it tells us about him. You see our Lord telling us in St. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, the Sermon on the Mount. By, by now you're recognizing that, St. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. By now it's registering to you in your mind that that's the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> what does our Lord say? Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Clean of heart, for they shall see God. St. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, just 20 verses later in the same chapter. But I say to you that whosoever shall look on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery in his heart. St. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, still in the Sermon on the Mount. For where thy treasure is, there is thy heart also. That's a beautiful statement of our Lord, very telling, very telling about us. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Now, 
the Sermon on the Mount takes three chapters out of St. Matthew's Gospel. It's the most important sermon ever given, most beautiful sermon ever given. But it starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. In other words, it's kind of a counterpart to the command commandments. The commandments that say, for the most part, thou shalt or thou shalt not. Now our Lord is telling us who are blessed by God. So what our Lord is doing here actually in his sermon is he's starting with the commandments of the new law. Because the Beatitudes are the commandments of the new law. Our Lord is telling you now who will be blessed in the eyes of God and what you must do to be blessed in the eyes of God. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, he hasn't come to do away with the old law. He's come to perfect the old law. And the way he perfects the old law is by giving us the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes go beyond the commandments because they are produced by those who love God. One can obey the commandments of God of the Old Testament out of fear of God and out of primarily concern for one's own welfare. But to practice the Beatitudes now, we have a question of the love of God involved here. And so that's why they go so far beyond the commandments. They presuppose the keeping of the commandments because they presuppose the love of God necessary to keep the commandments. And they build upon those commandments. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is actually an exposition of the Beatitudes. If you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes, you realize what our Lord is actually doing is he's commenting on the Beatitudes that he just gave and he's explaining to you how they are meant to be applied. So he starts with the Beatitudes and then he explains them. But central to them is the idea, uh, again, of the heart, the heart of man. And in St. Matthew chapter 9, again, just three chapters later, he says, And behold, they brought to him one sick of the palsy, lying in a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man sick of the palsy, Be of good heart, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Be of good heart. How often our Lord said that? In fact, the very next reference, St. Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Be of good heart, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that very hour. So the expression, be of good heart, is something we see in the very, in the very mouth of our Lord, <coughs> talking about the pure of heart, <coughs> talking about the unclean of heart, talking about those of good heart. And we see St. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Take up my yoke upon you and learn of me, because I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now our Lord there talking about his own heart. St. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. What he says there is very important. It, it contains much more than meets the eye. Because when our Lord says, I am meek and humble of heart, he says, learn from me for that reason. Okay, so you know that our Lord isn't saying, learn from me because I created the world, I walked on water, I raised the sick to uh, health, I raised the dead to life. Our Lord isn't saying, learn from me because I did all these things. Our Lord is saying, learn one thing from me. My meekness and humility of heart, learn that from me. Like that's the most important lesson we have, and actually the most difficult lesson we have to learn from him. 
That's the one lesson that really matters. In other words, be like me. What's, what's the expression? Jesus, meek and humble heart, make my heart like unto thine. That's the prayer, isn't it? But notice what our Lord says. He says, to learn from me, he says, take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. So learning from him is a consequence of taking his yoke upon us. What does he say? If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross every day and come after me. What is the yoke of Christ? It's the cross. It's patience. That's what he says. Learn from me. And the way you will learn from me is by following me with that cross, by learning patience. You will learn from me. And what will you learn from me? You will learn meekness and humility of heart. And what will be the consequence, he says? There you will find rest for your souls. There you will find rest for your souls. So he gives this, this consequence, carrying the cross in fidelity to him. It will teach you to be like him in his humility and meekness. And in that, you will find rest for your souls. Only there, really, will you find rest for your souls. St. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. It's an entire program of life right there. And uh, our Lord says in Matthew, notice we're still in the Gospel of St. Matthew. All of these references so far have just been in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. O generation of vipers, how can you speak good things whereas you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What pours out of the, out of the mouth comes from the heart. That's, that's what defiles a man, our Lord says. And St. Matthew chapter 13, for the heart of this people has grown gross, and with their ears they have been dull of hearing, and their eyes they have shut, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. Again, the heart, lest they should understand with their heart. In St. Matthew chapter 13 again, just a few verses later, when one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, there cometh the wicked one and snatch, catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that received the seed by the wayside. You recognize that parable. So time and time again, our Lord is referring to the, the question of the heart, the heart, the heart. Sometimes he is even referring to his own heart as though it represented all of him. He talks about the heart of man as being like the receptacle of his real identity and how he stands before God, what God sees of him. God doesn't just the external, he searches into the very reins, into the heart of, very, of man himself. So you get the idea. There are so many references, as I say, 120 references just in the New Testament alone, that can be referenced here, many of them from St. Matthew, I just gave you a handful, about the heart and how what it represents. You think about the heart, the human heart and what it is. You think about it naturally speaking, what the human heart is, and you think about it even in natural terms, and it's really wonderful. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing organ. And I promise you I will close with this. 
Because it's really something to think about. When you study the heart, there are facts about it which are phenomenal. You know, there's very few, very, very few cases of cancer of the heart. Very seldom do you hear. Statistically, it doesn't even exist. Statistically. <clears throat> Why not? Why not? Well, it's because once your heart has grown and matured, the cells don't divide anymore. Your heart just keeps on beating and it doesn't renew itself. And so the cells don't grow to become tumors in the heart. It's very, very rare that there is such a condition as that. Cancer of the heart. Curious. True. The cells that you have that develop in your adulthood are the same heart cells you're going to have for the rest of your life. Which is altogether amazing when you think about it, what that heart does. You know, the smaller the body, the faster the heart beats. In little children, the heart beats very quickly. Even in women. A woman's heart beats on the average of eight beats slow, faster than a man's heart. That would mean a woman's heart has to beat eight times more per minute, this is per minute, uh, than a man's heart. And so you add that up over a course of a lifetime. And a woman's heart has to beat a lot more than a man's heart to live the same length of time. And even the heart of a man and women react differently to stress. When men are under stress, their blood vessels constrict. When women are under stress, their hearts begin to beat faster. It's sort of like, I think, like electricity, where you have the question of amperage and voltage. Or like a hose, you know, you take a hose with the water coming out and you let the water just flow out and it just kind of comes out in a gush and falls to the ground. But you put your thumb over the opening of the hose and it begins to shoot out with force and travels a long distance. Well, the amount of water coming out of the hose, you just let it fall out, it's like the amperage. That's the amount of electricity going through a, a circuit. But you restrict it with that thumb, you know, and suddenly you increase the force of it and the voltage goes up. And you don't have as much water, but you have much more power, as it were, or force behind it, curiously enough. Well, oddly enough, in a man's body, stress causes the restriction of the blood vessels. <clears throat> Whereas in a woman's body, stress actually makes her heart beat faster. When you think about it, between a man's psychology and a woman's psychology, it has some very important effects. It's very designed. It's not an accident. <clears throat> and what a man does with stress and what a woman does to stress, it also helps explain why men are more prone to sudden death by heart attacks. And why a woman in distress needs to get that blood going and to pump that heart faster for if she has a child, depending on her, to nurture that child. So all of this is by design of God. When you think about a, a human heart having to pump blood through 60,000 miles of blood vessels, think about it, 60,000 miles of blood vessels, what that heart must do to be constantly circulating this blood. Every single cell of your body except your cornea depends upon that heart for the oxygen it needs to survive. 
And those blood vessels, the 60,000 miles of blood vessels in, a, in an adult, and it would be the same as a woman or a man, really, even different sizes, the same blood vessels have to cover everything. Some of those blood vessels are just a tiny fraction, a tenth of the width of a human hair. The blood has to be pushed through them by that heart. In the course of time, you figure it out, you can figure it mathematically. Somebody who has a heart rate of 60, 70 beats per minute, the course of living, 75, 76 years, we're talking about well over, especially when you count the rate, the heart rate of when you're children, we're talking about approaching three billion heartbeats. Three billion heartbeats to give you a, a lifetime. That's a lot of beating. The heart really takes a beating. The heart really does amazing things. It's astounding, the engineering involved in it. You can understand why we, even apart from sacred scripture, have considered the heart so central and it is actually centrally located in the body. It's like the body was built around the heart, almost. It's tilted so that the bottom of the heart is tilted to the left, but the heart itself is right smack dab in the center of the chest. The center of the body is the heart. So the heart, so the body is built around it. So when we talk about the sacred heart of Jesus, he had one of these. He had an actual sacred heart of human flesh that was beating for him beating for us, actually, beating more for us. And to think that we would see this, this human heart, this actually heart of flesh, of human muscle, of human tissue, that that heart would actually belong to Almighty God, that that's the heart of Almighty God. Well, we need to understand that heart in the biblical sense. We need to understand that heart because that's really the gate of heaven for us, opened now by the spear, but that's the gate of heaven that is now opened for us. We need to understand the heart of Jesus. So that's where we go now. Let's pray. And be on our way.